Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and it is a pleasure and an honor to be able to talk with Peter here, who I've admired enormously and learned a lot from myself. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And as you just said, today we have the pleasure of welcoming a truly world-class expert on the subject of trauma to the show, Dr. Peter Levine. So Dr. Levine has worked in the field of stress and trauma for over 40 years and is the developer of somatic experiencing, a body-oriented clinical method that's highly effective in dealing with the effects of overwhelm on our nervous system. He's received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the United States Association for Body Psychotherapy and the Honorary Reese Davis Chair in Child Psychiatry. Dr. Levine is also the author of the best-selling classic book on trauma, Waking the Tiger. He's authored and co-authored several other fantastic books, including Healing Trauma, In an Unspoken Voice, and Trauma and Memory. Our conversation today with Peter focuses on his work with somatic experiencing, and particularly what it's been like for him to work with clients of different kinds and the practices that he's brought forward in that space. This particularly focuses on the body and the way in which the body interacts with and holds trauma. Although there's a lot of material in here that's aimed at practitioners and the therapeutic space, I think that the episode is chock full of great advice for people trying to work through their old challenging experiences in a more self-help kind of way. Particularly, Peter gives some great advice on empathic attunement and the ways in which we can become more aware of the inner worlds of other people. As with all of our episodes that are related to challenging experiences of different kinds, please be kind to yourself while listening here. This episode includes descriptions of specific traumatic events, including particularly a couple of descriptions of wartime events. And if that material is difficult for you, Please take things slow, go at your own pace, and do whatever you need to do here. And of course, as with all of our episodes related to trauma of various kinds, there's certainly no judgment from us if you choose to skip this one. Before we get into our conversation with Peter, I wanted to mention a couple of things really quick. The first is that, as you might know, we're now on Patreon. If you'd like to receive a variety of benefits, including the expanded show notes that I put together for this episode, you can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast and become a patron. It's a great way to support the show and receive a variety of benefits in return. Second, Peter was actually traveling when we recorded this conversation, and unfortunately, his audio quality suffered a little bit as a result. As a bit of an audiophile myself, this is something that I'm actually really attentive to, and it's been a real focus of mine to improve the audio quality in general of our conversations with experts on the podcast. I just want you to know that it's something that I'm aware of and something that we're going to put some resources into in the future. But for today's conversation, I hope that you stick with it. It's really not that bad. And I think that Peter gives some absolutely fantastic information during this episode. All right, so it's time for a conversation with Peter. So it's a real pleasure to have you here on the show today, Doctor. How are you doing? It's good to be with you guys. I have to tell you, I really, it brings me a lot of mirth to see the two of you together. <laughs> yeah, people say that sometimes. It's, um, I think for a lot of people who have known uh, Rick for a long time, I think that it's, it's funny to have this kind of interaction with me in this sort of a space. But we're really looking forward to doing this. I'd like to start by kind of framing your work and talking about somatic experiencing for the people listening who might be just a little bit less familiar with it. 
So somatic experiencing draws some of its inspiration from observing nature. Specifically, as we've talked about on the podcast before, you can watch an animal in the wild endure a completely life-threatening situation and then mere moments later return to a very normal kind of functioning. A zebra gets chased by a, by a lion, it's running for its life, and it manages to survive. 30 minutes later, it's just kind of chilling, eating the grass. But humans don't really seem to do that quite so well. So why is that? And why is somatic experiencing sort of a response to that? When I began to develop somatic experiencing, that was in the late, the early 70s, late 60s. There was no definition of trauma the way there is today as PTSD. That didn't arise until I think 1981 or thereabout. So I was both unfortunate and fortunate because I didn't know that trauma was an incurable brain disorder that at best could be managed. Had I known that, I probably wouldn't have gone on. And you're putting air quotes around the phrase incurable brain disorder yes, that can't exactly. be managed. Yeah, that's right. Anyhow, I was beginning a mind-body approach to stress at the time. But as I continued to work with people, a friend of mine who was a psychiatrist, he referred a woman to me who I call Nancy. And Nancy had been suffering from all kinds of physical conditions, things which we would now call fibromyalgia, irritable bowel syndrome, chronic fatigue, migraines, severe PMS. She was also suffering from severe panic attacks and agoraphobia to the point where she really couldn't even leave the house to walk around the block without her husband being there. Living in a kind of hell. Yeah, in a, in a prison, really, in a prison. They had gone from specialist to specialist to specialist. She had gone from specialist to specialist. So she came in with her husband, wide-eyed, deer in the headlight. So I tried to reassure them. And then I invited her into the consultation room. And I began to do the relaxation techniques that I had developed. And when she came in, her heartbeat was about 150 beats a minute. I worked with those muscles, got her to relax. and much to my happiness, her pulse started going down and down and down, almost into a normal range. But then just in a fraction of a second, her heart shot up higher, even higher than when she came in. And so I said what was probably the stupidest thing that anybody could say. And that was, Nancy, you must relax. You need to relax. But her heart rate then started going back down again and went down to again to 75 to 65 to 55 and she turned pale she locked onto my eyes and said doctor i'm dying i'm dying don't let me die help me help me i mean it's really you know this happened in 1969 and even when i tell it i get a little bit of tightening in my chest I mean, it moves through, but I was really, I was at the moment, I was, I was terrified. I didn't know what to do. So then I saw an image at the far end of the consulting room of a tiger crouched, getting ready to spring. Sorry, is this an imagined image or you had a... This is an imagined image. Okay, it's not like you had the painting on the wall. No, 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 no. This just arose in your mind. Yes, a waking dream, you could say, a waking dream. And so 
I said, Nancy, there's a tiger. There's a tiger chasing you. Run, climb those rocks and escape. And much to my amazement, after a short period of time, her legs started to shake and tremble, started to move as though she was laying down, as though she were running. And this one, and then her body would shake and tremble, waves, her fingers would become icy cold and then warm, and there'd be a spontaneous breath. And this cycle went on for almost 40 minutes. And towards the end, there was only a very, very gentle, gentle tremoring, and her heartbeat had settled down. She then opened her eyes, and she said to me, um, doctor, do you want to know what happened? You told me about the image of the tiger, and you instructed me to run. I couldn't run. My legs felt like lead, like I was running in mud or underwater. But when you encouraged me, and I did, I encouraged her, I said, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it, Nancy. I could start to feel my legs running. And then I could feel my arms and hands as I was climbing the, climbing the rock. And then when I got to the top, I looked down and I saw the tiger, but the image of the tiger disappeared. And I saw the image of myself, a picture of myself when I was four years old. And I was being held down by the doctors and nurses and given an ether mask for a tonsillectomy. And in a way, I, I realized well, a few things her body had wanted to run and escape for 20 years. She was about 24 when I saw her, but she was unable to because she was held down. But it's like now she was being held down by the memory of what happened. It's not a conscious memory. It's what it's sometimes called a procedural or a body memory. So you're saying about animals. So at that time, I was I was in graduate school at UC Berkeley in the, I was doing my doctoral research in actually in the zoology department and we had a seminar that met every couple of weeks and I had remembered that a few weeks before Donald Wilson was talking about a little known phenomenon called tonic immobility and tonic immobility if you take an animal and you hold it so it can't move and you're not really frightening it, you're just restraining it. And it goes into this state called tonic immobility. And the heartbeat goes very, very low. There's almost no respiration. You can barely see the respiration. But then the animal comes out of it, usually in a matter of minutes, sometimes even seconds. When Nancy went into that state, she didn't just come out of it. I mean, it took a lot, you know, took the guidance and took her to be able to move through this tremendous amount of fear. Trauma and stress is not just something that happens in the brain, that happens in the mind. It's something that happens in the body. And until our experience in the body changes, until it changes, then we're always gripped by the trauma. The trauma is acting as though it is present, but we're not able to be in the here and now because we're the, we're the there and the then. So until the body response can change, till the experience in the body can change from helplessness and terror to mastery and expansion, the person remains stuck. 
This is bottom-up processing. So rather than, for example, cognitive behavior therapy, which might help somebody try to change their thoughts about their trauma. By the way, I'm a fan of those approaches, CBT and CPT, but it doesn't get at the underlying biology of the trauma. And that's why bottom-up work is critical when it's working with healing deep trauma, not just managing the trauma, but really healing the deep trauma. Peter, if I could just make a quick interjection. My headline takeaway from that story with Nancy, as well as your work in general, that I find revelatory is this notion that in some ways the embodied internalization of trauma has to do with an inhibited normal coping response. Rather than being able to get away from the tiger or being able to get away from the doctors who, well-intended, let's say, are still holding down the four-year-old, that response is in, is immobilized. And so then that immobilization then is left inside the body. And so much about your work is helping people in very, very skillful ways kind of reclaim the natural coping response, the natural adaptive response to hit, to punch, to scream, to yell, to get allies involved and so forth. That was not available to the person way back when. And I find that fantastic. Yes, this is a lot about completing responses that were incomplete. So again, like with Nancy, her response was to fight back and to try to escape, to run and escape. But she wasn't able to do that, again, because she was held down. So she was able to complete and then to reclaim that sense of agency and power, empowerment. And, you know, uh, remarkably, after that session, that was the last panic attack she had. And we did several more sessions. The majority of her physical symptoms greatly improved. Some disappeared. And so after that, I knew that this was, you know, this was the direction of my life was going to go. I didn't, I had no idea how far it would go, really. But I knew I knew I knew I was no longer going to be a, a rocket scientist, <laughs> biology <laughs> rocket science. Well, I think that you became probably a different kind of rocket scientist as all that happened, doctor. But uh, jokes aside, in that story, which is a classic and moving story, there's to speak frankly, I, I've watched some videos of you working with different people, including people who have what you would describe as severe PTSD, combat veterans, people like that. And there's this kind of funny, almost magic, which is a word that I hesitate to use, but I can't really find a better one. Sometimes in watching you go through that process with people, from little things like the images that you evoke in others, to the way that you angle the chairs, to how you pitch your body toward them or away from them at different moments. And just in that story that you told with the tiger, just the moment of evocation of this waking dream of the image of the tiger kind of popping into your brain. So I, I don't think that there is something truly quote unquote mystical there. What I think is that the core of somatic experiencing of somatic psychology in general is found in the soma. It's found in the body. So there are things in the body that you are seeing or responding or reacting to that maybe other less experienced people in this discipline are not able to see and to respond and to react to. So this is probably a big question, but like, how are you doing that? What are right. the things in the body that you're responding to and seeing? Yogi Berra said, you can observe a lot just by watching. And I've trained myself to really look for minute changes 
which appear externally, but which are really profound internal shifts in the person. You know, in our three-year training program, the first year is really people building up the skill base. I mean, some of the theory, of course, but the skill base and observing another person and being able to relate to them. A couple of things. So I don't dispute you're using the term magic. But at the same time, I want to know what does that magic entail? And it entails, I think, being able to really connect with a, another living being at a interceptive to interceptive energetic connection. You know, uh, this summer when I was teaching in Switzerland, the idea was I wanted to really do a workshop geared to what's implicit in doing sessions with people. And I think the title of the class was Presence, Connection, and Intuition. The idea first, as therapists, we really have to arrive with the client. And a lot of times, therapists don't realize that. Also, you know, often therapists are sitting sometimes for six hours, even eight hours a day in chairs, not moving. And you really can't stay present by doing that. Your body starts to close down. Our bodies need movement. Our minds need movement. So again, how to get there, how to be present, and then how to connect. And if you are able to do those things within the first few seconds or first few minutes or even first few seconds of a session, the whole session will go in a much more coherent way than if you don't get that at the very, very beginning. And it's really kind of remarkable. You know, there's one example. This is on the uh, YouTube. It's a documentary that was made of some work that I did with an um, Iraq vet named Ray, who'd been blown up by two of these IEDs. And this was right after his best friend died in his arms. And you see at the very beginning, he absolutely can't look anywhere towards me. He's looking down and away. And his body is doing these twitching. Again, this is, I know it. He was diagnosed, among everything else, with Tourette syndrome, which was ridiculous because you don't get Tourette syndrome overnight. But what it was, it was his body repeating what it was trying to do at the moment of that blast. So his head tried to locate where the sound was, but before his head could even move, he was blown up into the air. And then all the muscles in his belly and the front of his body contracted like into a ball. And by just working with that, even just for a few minutes, he actually, 80% of that convulsion disappeared. But the other thing I wanted to start with is, and he said something like, I don't like it when people have to take care of me. And I said, oh, yeah, you want your independence back. So where did those words come from? Why did I say them? Well, you can certainly think logically. But in order for it to really happen in real time, you don't have time to think about it. You have to say, well, maybe he said this and maybe I should, could say that. It has to be from this, this sense of presence and connection that this intuition evolved. Sometimes people give intuition, a, again, a mystical quality, but I don't think it is at all. I think it's based on a lot of our experience because then when something happens that has some familiarity, we're able to do it immediately without thinking. But if you don't have that, it, it doesn't work. 
you have to have a lot of, again, experience and practice, you know, practice, practice, practice. And it seems like magic. I totally agree with you, doctor. And I think that that's a great description of the difference between the experience of somebody observing it without knowledge versus the experience of a practitioner inside of it, where to you in that moment, these choices seem either intuitive or obvious or whatever the language is that you want to use for them. There are some people who listen to this who are clinicians who do this kind of work with other people. And I also think that for individuals just through life, kind of learning a quick and dirty version of how to drop into that space of compassionate awareness, compassionate witnessing, joining with another person is just a really useful global skill. Obviously, that's something that many people train for many, many years to be able to do effectively, as you're referring to here. But I'm wondering if simply in the course of this conversation, if there are one or two little practices that you do regularly in that moment in order to drop into that feeling of connection with another person. Okay. Well, as you very well know, you know, mindfulness has just exploded. It's considered to be common knowledge. I like to talk about bodyfulness as well as embodied mindfulness. And I think now the centrality of the body is being recognized. So of course, if I'm, if I have thoughts that are going on, you know, when I'm getting ready to do a session, I'll look at the thoughts. But more importantly, I, I go to, to what's going on in my body. You know, as an example, in the 70s, because I was fortunate enough, because I was in a medical scientific program, So I got a deferment and I didn't have to go fight in Vietnam. But a number of the people that I knew did go to Vietnam and not all came back. And some came back really wounded, not just physically. And they would invite me to their rap groups. You know, they asked me what I did and I told them a little bit about that. I said, look, you know, I'll keep my Thursdays free. And if anybody wants to come in, the chair is open. So the first Thursday, one person showed up and he started telling me almost before he sat down about all the horrible things that he was made to do or that he did. And I was shocked and I felt nauseous. I felt dizzy, almost like I might faint. But of course, I knew what to do. I knew that by being with those sensations, by being mindful, if you like, of the bodily sensations, they shifted and they changed. And so I said to him, when you told me about what you just told me about, and I said, I felt dizzy, I felt nauseous, I felt like I might almost pass out, but I knew what to do. And I was able to let those sensations move through in my body. And I imagine this is a skill that could really help you to be able to deal with these hauntings. So we practiced some of those techniques. And the next Thursday, there was a line up Milvia Street and then around the corner. And so I went to the people who own the house where I rented a little room as my office. And uh, I asked if I could bring people in. And we had our first group session where we worked with some of these tools How do you work with when some difficult emotion or sensation occurs? How do you reference it in your body? And how do you, what I call pendulate, you move into it just a little bit 
and then move out. Move into it just a little bit and then move out further. So when a person has been fighting their sensations for who knows, sometimes their whole lives, it seems like it's going to be completely overwhelming. But if you help guide them just to touching into those sensations and then to coming back, to go internally a little bit and then come back out and orient externally. By doing those kinds of shifting sort of uh, somatic exercises, somatic awareness exercises, the person then begins to move out of the trauma. They start to have new experience in their bodies. And again, it's the new experiences that shift the person from trauma to awakening and flow. That's beautiful. So Peter, on that, I, I have two quick comments and then a question. So the first comment is that it has struck me when I very first watched you work that you're the trauma whisperer. And what I mean by that is that you speak the bodily language, the nonverbal language, and you're able to read it really, really well and then help others understand it in part through using um, verbal language. But you're really talking about a kind of language of trauma that's very bodily expressive. It's a sensory motor language. And also you're very uh, adept with the syntax of that language, its structure, its sequencing, its proper flow. And I think that's also an opportunity for people in general, both through getting formal training from you and your trainings and reading your books, and also more generally to, to kind of reflect on what the body is communicating with this intelligence, but in nonverbal ways. Exactly. You know, uh, Rumi, the, the Sufi poet, said there is a language that doesn't use words. Listen, observe. That's exactly right. So then on that, and that kind of leads to my second comment with your, what you just said there about listening, I want to make very explicit what you implied and somewhat said, which is that it's critically important to resource ourselves as we grapple with trauma, including through understandings or the skills of mindfulness, let's say, that allow us to pendulum in or pendulate in and then pendulate out. Really, really important. And also to have resources of external support, such as therapists and people like you. So here's my question. Most of the people listening to this who have had either macro trauma, you know, single acute trauma, or a lot of accumulation of micro traumas, and in some case, multiple macro traumas, most of those people are not currently seeing a therapist and may well never see a therapist. And yet there are certainly things they can do themselves that are within range and skillful and sufficiently resourced themselves. And so I want to see if you could speak to that, a few takeaways for people in general, civilians, as it were, for what they can do with themselves. And in particular, I wonder if you want to speak to the topic of shame, feelings of worthlessness, damage, and so forth, because that's such a pervasive and unfortunate side effect, as it were, of being horribly mistreated. Yeah, yeah. Shame. That's probably the 800-pound gorilla that's in the consulting room. And it's something that really can kind of arrest the therapeutic process, you know, even where there's not extreme trauma. One of the things that I realized, that I discovered, is that in shame, remember when I described Nancy running and then her heartbeat went to a very low level? Well, 
this we later learned to call the, the polyvagal theory, that at a certain stage of development, usually around 18 months to two years, the, uh, th this is the first time the, the, the infant is now becoming a toddler and running all over the place and potentially inflicting danger <laughs> to itself. And so the parent has to be able to say no, and that stops whatever they're doing. And it feels horrible. It feels almost like death because it's a very similar physiology to what Nancy was exhibiting in that escape. And so, again, using the same basic principles of having to move, the person move very, very slowly into the shame posture, moving very, very subtly, slowly, increasing that posture of shame, that looking away, that looking down, that collapsing of the front of the body, but just a little teeny bit, and then moving out of it very, very slowly, because again, it's the inner movement that's critical. And not, you, can't, you can't just change your posture and it won't change the feeling. And this is someone, this is something a person could do themselves, Peter. Yes, it is something, but you know, it's really with shame, it's really important that there's somebody there, the empathic other who's just there, who's present for you when you're doing that. And often what happens when the person does this, then they're able to really look at where the shame is coming from. I think it's really, really critical to really understand what people can do by themselves and also where there might be a limit. There are literally tens of millions of people who have symptoms like Nancy's. So again, people who have these conditions, they have a considerably higher level of trauma in their histories. But also just having those kind of symptoms can itself be extremely stressful and not being able to get a treatment or even a diagnosis can be very stressful to people. But here's one exercise that people can do. The idea here, and we haven't really talked about the vagus nerve, but the vagus nerve goes from the brainstem down in throughout the whole of the interior of the body. Vagus means vagabond, wanderer. And particularly, it goes to the organs of digestion. And what happens is when we see something horrible, that a message goes down that nerve. And by the way, it's the largest nerve in the body. And it twists the guts up and the guts go, ugh. But what was, but has little known, and Steve Porges revivified this idea. So we see something and we go, yuck. That's a motor uh, action. But then the sensory input sensory receptors in the guts send the signals back up 80% of that nerve back up into the brainstem where it gets amplified and then gets sent down again. So it's like start with, oh, you see some, somebody being hit by a car and you go, oh, then that goes up to the brainstem and it amplifies and oh, God. And again, that's how it gets stuck in the body. So I designed this little exercise with a very particular sound to vibrate it down in those receptors in the gut to signal it back up into the brainstem to say the threat is over. You can let go now. So the idea is to take an easy full breath and on the exhalation making the sound vu as though it's coming from the belly and letting the breath and the sound go all the way out. 
and then just waiting for the new breath to, to come in on its own, filling belly and then chest, and then again, the vu sound. So I'll demonstrate it. And anybody is, of course, welcome to join in. And, uh, you know, if it feels intimidating or it doesn't feel right for any reason, then, of course, don't do it or just listen to it. Often that's enough to help the person shift a little bit out of a state of shutdown. So we go easy breath, easy full breath. And I'm probably reading it down in my belly. Let the air and the sound all the way out. Let the new breath come in, filling belly, chest. And then just rest and notice any sensations, feelings, thoughts, or inner images. Just noticing them, not trying to or needing to do anything with them, but just noticing them. And then just notice what happens next and next. So that's an exercise I'll often do it with a client at the beginning of it. Well, at all different times, but often at the beginning of a session. And I'll offer to do it with them, but that's I'm partly cheating there because I'm using that for myself as well. It's this whole idea when you shift something from the bottom up, then things really can open up in our whole thought processes and in our perceptions. That's a a wonderful practice, Peter. And just in response to that, as a quick comment, I remember very distinctly being in my late teens, early 20s. I did not have any kind of acute traumatic experience in my childhood that is of the kind that we're talking of. But, you know, I had a lot of accumulation of stress of various kinds. And I remember the first couple of times that I started getting more in touch with my interior and actually letting my body sort of fully relax in a variety of different ways. And often it would make me want to cry. And I didn't really know why I wanted to cry just because I was relaxing my body. But it really just shows the connection that you're speaking to between that relaxing, settling sensation in uh, the body, the gut, the whatever it might be, and the release of that emotional, psycho-emotional material. That's right. You know, sometimes tears can be relief. You know, you're letting go and, oh my gosh, I've been holding on to this. Often when I'm working with a person and I'll notice their eyes starting to moisten, I'll say something like, if you could let your tears speak, not you, but let your tears speak, what might your tears want to say? And they would say something, it could be, I'm so angry, or I'm so sad, or I feel relief. So it takes it out of the head. And that's why I give the guidance to let your tears speak. And that's a really beautiful practice for really for anyone as either a thought experience or when talking with somebody Absolutely. else. So I want to close with a, a question that I've really been musing on a lot recently, and I'm really curious about your take on it. We've mostly been talking about what I'll call 
capital T versions of trauma, you know, acute incidents that have that seizing effect on the body, uh, trauma in wartime, uh, you know, physical abuse, whatever it might be. Uh, Something that's been interesting to me recently is this idea of lowercase t versions of trauma, not a single major incident, but little things that accumulate over the course of a life, whether it be kind of dismissive family environment, trouble in school, the normal stresses that we go through. And obviously, big T trauma is potent and horrible and very apparent in the space. But sometimes the lowercase t trauma, you know, people don't really view it as problematic in the same kind of way. And I just have to wonder from your experience, what have you seen in working with those two different kinds of trauma? And are there any differences there? It's interesting. My doctoral dissertation in Berkeley was accumulated stress, reserve capacity, and dis-ease. Yes, these things can accumulate over time. And when a person is in a situation as a child and then even as an adult, where there's just this ongoing stress, nothing really shows up as you call a teat, a big T trauma. But it just erodes and erodes and accumulates and in a sense wears us down. Also, this is somewhat different, some things can happen that, you know, just don't seem like that big a thing. For example, I'm thinking of one client that I work with and he would experience anxiety when he'd be invited out for dinner to a friend's house or even to a restaurant. But that, and that was pretty, you know, it didn't seem like he had other anxieties, but that was a clear trigger for him. So we began to work on it. So it turns out it went to an image, a memory, a body memory. When he was about five years old, they were visiting a friend's house or a relative's house. So the table was full of dishes and food. He's a curious five-year-old, and one of the corners from the <laughs> from the tablecloth was hanging down. So of course he grabbed it and pulled it, and stuff came crashing down. And they didn't even scream at him, but the startle and seeing their faces where they were startled, that just got locked in. So again, he had the symptom which didn't make any sense, except if you know why it made sense. You know, so again, every time he would go into the restaurant or to somebody's house, that anxiety. So he was back in that five-year-old state. That's really fascinating. Just to opine for a second here, one of the things you're really pointing to is the way in which we tend to dismiss or gloss over events in life that truly were impactful for us in a variety of different ways. That person may have never thought that that pulling the tablecloth moment was something that would have that kind of an impact on them long term. And if you're telling that story to somebody, it might seem like really a very small thing that you should have, quote unquote, just gotten over. But if you're activating that fight or flight mechanism, if the vagus nerve is getting triggered, if it's being held and clenched in the body in that fashion, you know, it's kind of hard sometimes maybe for the body to tell the difference between that event and one that was more truly life-threatening. And what really matters is whether that embodied experience is getting triggered, whether it's by little T's or big T's. 
Sometimes it's worth pointing out we can also internalize the dismissal of other people toward our own negative experiences. How many times can a person be told, oh, that really seems like it wasn't that big of a deal, or have somebody kind of laugh it off with them before they just start to think, oh, yeah, I shouldn't really think about that as being the significant event in my life. But as has been a theme throughout our conversation, it's the difference between top-down and bottom-up. You might top-down think of it like, oh, it's not that big a deal, but bottom-up, the body still might really be held in a, in a cycle of closing and holding around that event, which is just a, um, a really wonderful thing to point out and something that's really reshaping in the moment the way that I think about this kind of material. So again, Peter, you know, thank you so much for taking the time here. It was really wonderful having you with us today. Yeah, it's just lovely seeing the two of you, really. So today we had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Dr. Peter Levine. We began with Peter's story of waking the tiger and the experience that he had working closely with a client who was really gripped by the symptoms of trauma. By using imagery that forced her body into release and movement, Peter really discovered a methodology for helping people move past the embodied symptoms of their traumatic experiences, a major feature of which is allowing the body to complete the response that was seized or held at the time that the trauma happened. The example that was given in the story was a gas mask being put over somebody to knock them out and them struggling against the doctors that were holding them down. The body wasn't able to run away in that moment. So by allowing it to complete that cycle of running, that traumatic material can be released or lessened inside of the body itself. We then spent some time talking about empathic attunement and the ways in which Peter or people who practice somatic experiencing methods are able to really tune in to the people that they're working with, drawing on really very subtle signs inside of the physical presentation of the body that allow them to make good choices inside of a clinical space. Much of this simply comes from practice, but Peter also pointed to great mindfulness and observational techniques that can be useful either in a clinical setting or simply, frankly, in everyday life when talking to friends. We went from there into a conversation focused on shame which Peter described as the 800-pound gorilla in the room. A lot of the time, people have a challenging time interacting with their trauma material because there's so much shame built up around it. We internalize our own oppression. We internalize the dismissive views of people around us. And this can make it really hard to come to terms with the ways in which we truly were impacted by negative experiences. And for me, one of the most touching examples of this is looking at soldiers coming home from war, experiencing PTSD. You really can't describe a more tough-minded, valiant group of people than wartime veterans. And even so, these people are absolutely afflicted by the consequences of the experiences they suffered in those completely traumatic environments. So it's really not about how tough you are. It's not about keeping a stiff upper lip. Anyone can be affected by that shame and anyone can internalize those traumatic experiences and hold them in both the body and the mind. We closed with a brief conversation on what I described as little T trauma versus big T trauma, big T trauma being singular traumatic events or even a cycle of major traumatic events happening over a period of time. These are the things where if you described them to somebody, they would go, oh yeah, that was a big deal. These are some of the things that we think of as classically traumatic in nature. 
and we contrasted them with little t traumatic events. This is just the normal stress that occurs during everyday life, either allostatic load building up over time, things like being in a family with a slightly dismissive or avoidant or distant parent, or things like being a minority ethnic child going to a majority ethnic school, or negative experiences while at school with other kids that were persistent in nature. These are everyday stresses, but still significant ones that over time build up in the body. And Peter shared a story that kind of subverted my framework that I offered. A story of a person who had had a pretty normal event happen in their childhood, you know, pulling a tablecloth and causing dishes to clatter to the floor. And even though that was a pretty normal event that most people would not view as quote-unquote traumatic in nature, it had long-term impacts on that individual's ability to relate to a certain kind of environment. So even the little T's can, in their own way, be big T's if that cycle inside of the body is triggered. Before we close the show, I'd like to remind you one more time about our new Patreon account. You can go to patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast if you would like to support the show and receive a variety of benefits in return. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice. Maybe leave a rating or a positive review and also tell a friend about it if you can do that. It really does help us out. It's one of the absolute best ways to support the podcast. So until next time, thanks for listening.